do agree with those those prayers and we want to lift up your name and focus on you and get to know you better today as we look at this passage that emphasizes your nature. May we always be focused on that. Have ever before our thinking not only your nature and your character, but uh, the relationship that we have with you. We ask that if there any be anything that hinders that fellowship and relationship, that we would confess that right now, and that we would have free fellowship with one another and with, with you in your word as we uh, seek to understand it this morning. So we just commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's take a look at the book of Romans this morning. Just introduce the passage that we started to get into last week. One thing that you can uh, do that I think is very, very important is get to know the nature and perfections of God. Who is God? If you have a solid grasp, in fact, if you have a a good understanding of the nature of God, it's going to ward off a lot of false doctrine or doctrine that deviates from that that is pure, good, sound, sound biblical doctrine. And we will see by the time we get through these first eight verses in uh, chapter 3, that is basically what Paul is talking about, kind of reverse some objections or protests that a Jewish mind might conceive of in the first century. Some of these he probably actually encountered in some of his ministry, because remember, as he ministered in synagogues and places outside of even Jerusalem and within Jerusalem, he had a lot of contact with Jewish people. These are things that probably came up after he explained his doctrine of justification by faith and uh, the need to trust in Messiah. These are probably things that rose up. So in this letter that he writes to the Romans, which I believe, had Paul visited the city of Rome, had he taught directly the church that existed there, personally, I believe the Lord delayed his plans. If you read the early part in the introduction and then the conclusion, he had already planned to be in Rome. And things got delayed in his third missionary journey. And rather than going to Rome, he has to go back to Jerusalem, and he explains that that was his desire, but he's going to be delayed. And I believe that had he visited Rome, this would have been the essence of what he would have taught. And it's probably the essence of what he taught at Corinth and other locations when he was there face to face. So he's answering these objections that he probably heard at Corinth or perhaps Ephesus or another location. And rather than leaving them lay, he answers them in this portion to demonstrate that a Jewish mindset needs a Messiah just as much as any lost Gentile. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. He lays out their predicament in chapter 2, verse 1. We've looked at the principles of judgment, 2 through 16. We completed looking at the portion where Paul proves that they are lost and will in fact face that judgment that he's laid out. There's no escape. God deals impartially, and that includes Jewish people. And now he's raising the potential protests, staying with the P alliteration there, that Jews may have concerning 
what he has just said in chapter 2. That's verses 1 through 8 in chapter 3. So we've looked at the proof of the Jewish guilt. We're looking at the protests of the Jews. Four objections on your outline sheet. We got through the first objection last week, and the others kind of stem from them. In other words, they kind of flow. In other words, if you conclude this, what about this? If you conclude that, what about this? And there are four in all, each of them involving two verses. Some of the issues that he deals with in these verses, these are all primarily related to Israel, to Jewish people, to the Jewish nation. A little photograph in the towel, by the way, at night on the beach. First issue, is it actually a disadvantage to be Jewish? It's almost that Paul goes to the other end. They thought of themselves as advantageous and had many advantages. And after Paul's done with chapter 2, it almost seems like we're at a disadvantage. So he's going to answer that in verse 2. Is the Jew reduced to a Gentile? He makes a statement that almost seems like that's the case. They are called uncircumcision if they don't have circumcision of the heart. That's a description of a Gentile. They're the uncircumcised. So is a Jew reduced to a Gentile? And obviously a Jew would recoil at that and go to the Old Testament and refute any idea along those lines. Well, that's not what Paul is saying, so he's going to expand upon that. And the implication is if the first two are true, then does that mean that the Old Testament is a false witness? Because it puts prominence in the nation of Israel. And I think Paul deals with that as well, not only quoting the Old Testament, but also referring to Old Testament doctrine. And specifically, and particularly when we talk about circumcision, that's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant And if a Jew can be made un-Jew, if you will, or un-Jewish, what about the Abrahamic covenant? Is God breaking the Abrahamic covenant? He's going to deal with that as well. Another issue he raises, well, in all of this, God is glorified, God is magnified, the righteousness of God is made visible through the Jewish unrighteousness, Is this kind of unfair? God has kind of taken advantage of the situation of the Jew and taking credit upon himself. Does this make God unfair? So these are all the issues that he deals with. And obviously these all stem from a faulty understanding of the nature and perfections of God. So he's going to deal with all of those and answer them biblically. So verse 1, we looked at this last time. What advantage has the Jew? And obviously the answer in verse 2, he also asks, what is the benefit of circumcision relating to the Abrahamic covenant? Verse 2, great in every respect. And he's not going to deal with the details here. He's just going to answer the objection so he can move on to demonstrate the Jewish Lostness, if you will, Jewish depravity, the Jewish need for a Messiah. So he's just going to answer it. So he says, first of all, in other words, I could add a whole list, and he will in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Three entire chapters, he's going to actually deal with more of this and even more than that. 
First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Very, very important, very significant. In other words, God gave them the privilege of hearing direct words, particularly Sinai, and the little word oracles refers to utterances or sayings or direct communication. Israel was entrusted with that. They inscripturated that. And that's the advantage that they have. They had initial and direct revelation from God. And that's a privilege. We have the benefit of that through the nation of Israel, not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. So a tremendous advantage that the Jew has. They had personal relationship, personal communication with the one true God that created all things. No other people had that. Israel was the one that had that advantage. So great in every way. So that answers that issue. So the oracles of God we looked at last time, sayings and utterances. It's used only four times in the New Testament. So in this particular context, I think it probably refers to that Sinai experience of Israel. It is recorded in the book of Exodus which is the heart of all of the Old Testament. And we looked at some of these views. I think the focus here particularly are the messianic promises that are made to Israel. And those messianic promises deal with the covenants. Deal with the covenants. It's Messiah that will bring about the fulfillment of those covenants. So all of those covenants have not yet been fulfilled even in our time today. Some of them have been partially fulfilled, but not ultimately fulfilled. Some of the implications we looked at, yes, many advantages. And this is important. Israel is still today an instrument of God, 21st century. They exist today because God has not completed his plan with them. They're not in fellowship God is not using them directly, and I believe he's brought them back to Israel, the land, in preparation for all that the rest of the New Testament and Old Testament has prophesied that is yet unfulfilled. They are still a primary instrument of God today. And I believe if you want blessing, according to the Abrahamic covenant, God is going to bless the nations based on their treatment of the nation of Israel. And I think that's real today as well, and has been real historically. And if we, when we've looked at Abrahamic covenant, we've talked a lot about examples of how God has done that. And remember, this is just a reminder, Paul is speaking to churches, look at Romans, churches in Rome, when he states these things in chapter 3. In other words, these are present realities. The nation of Israel has advantage today, 21st century, and since the first century. The church age is in existence, yet they still have advantages. Make sense? So, unfortunately, we started a discussion. Photios got us started with his question, and I wanted to expand it when we got into the following verses, but let's look at it again. There's still this church-slash-Israel distinction. There's a very, very common idea, or theology even, in fact, covenant theology, 
virtually all of covenant theology, which is a large segment of Christianity, believes that the Old Testament Israel equals the church. In other words, if you want to see the church in the Old Testament, it's Israel. Therefore, when you see the church in the New Testament, that is what? That's New Testament Israel. And there's a few passages that seem to indicate that that's maybe a possibility, but taken together in light of particularly the covenants, the promises, clear prophetic statements, you can't hold to that that idea, that doctrine. There's a distinction. In other words, Israel is different and distinct. God has a plan for them. The church is different. The church is not. Israel. The church is a distinct entity. It's not a national entity. We don't have a land. We don't have covenants. We don't have these contracts. A nation has this. A nation has a land, has a distinct people. They have a constitution. The church does not. There are distinctions. We can make a whole long list. Connie, you had a question or a comment? There's a passage on the talks about being Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that has more spiritual implications. In other words, there's a distinction, but yet there is some sharing of some things, but that is carried way, way too far when you have this idea that there's this total meshing or total mixing. In fact, that passage is very helpful on this issue In, because it mm-hmm. shows there's a very clear distinction yes. between Islam and the church. Right. And, and so the passage that Connie's talking about, which is in Romans, right. is very helpful in, in turning down this heresy. And in fact, it implies that if the church is like Israel and is unfaithful, they can be broken off as well. In other words, God can cease to use them as an instrument. No, he doesn't imply it. He directly states He states it. Yep. Good point. Okay. Salt, but he's talking, I think, in general there. And the Bible does predict an apostasy of the church. And a remnant, and we're probably there already. So there's a distinction. Now, stemming from this meshing of the two has been, from even very early in the church, another idea, or you might even say kind of a corollary to mixing of the church and Israel, is what has been described historically, that's why I'm using the word there, and some of you are frowning at it because you may not have heard of it. I'll give you the common description, but it's called supersessionism. How many of you have heard that word? That's why I use it, so you can be exposed to it. (laughs) Almost. (laughs) This was an early development, even amongst some of the church fathers. The idea was Israel rejected her Messiah. That's a fact. The nation rejected Jesus Christ. The nation participated in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The nation as a whole, that was the official position of the nation. But it was not necessarily a universal thing. In fact, all of the early Christians were Jewish. All of the disciples were Jewish. All of the apostles were Jewish. The early church, until later in the book of Acts was Jewish. Gentiles began to come in later, Cornelius, etc., the Ethiopian eunuch, etc. People 
from other nations. As the church became more and more Gentile, this idea became more and more prominent, and particularly after 70 AD, where the nation, I believe, was in fact judged. The nation was destroyed. It was no longer a nation. After 70 AD, the nation was scattered. Now we're talking about official nation. We're not talking about individual Jews. Even in 70 AD, the church was predominantly Jewish. But some within the nation, God's remnant, trusted in the Messiah. Supersessionism stems from this idea. It takes it one step further, which is not biblical. In fact, goes against a lot of scripture. The idea that the church has replaced the nation of Israel, that's supersessionism. Or today it's commonly referred to as what Photius referred to, replacement theology. This is very, very common amongst the church. Now, I should have made a distinction last week. I mentioned that the Reformed Church, which is predominantly covenant theology, the Reformed Church basically mixes Israel and the church and does not make that distinction. But overall, the Reformed Church has not taken the next step. Large segments of it have, but not the entire, and I didn't make that distinction last time. So many within the Reformed Church do, in fact, hold to the idea of replacement theology. But I think that's not only unbiblical, but it's even dangerous. Because from that has stemmed another step, and you all have heard it, anti-Semitism. So if God has rejected Israel, God has judged Israel, and if God has replaced Israel with the church, then it's kind of a natural thing. And from that, the church historically has persecuted the nation of Israel or persecuted Jewish people, which is definitely wrong. In fact, it goes against the Abrahamic covenant and puts those that do that in jeopardy of God judging them. And when nations have taken that stand, God has brought down every nation that has done that historically. Maybe not those that exist today, but that will be their future unless they repent of that position. Does that make sense? So it began in early church history. It has persisted throughout church history and exists today and is growing. In other words, this idea is growing within the broader church. That's why I'm raising it, to make you aware. It's a major view today, and it has led to anti-Semitism. And much of the anti-Semitism within spiritual or within church settings comes from this theology. It's kind of the next step away from the true biblical doctrine And you can see that in some churches today. Some denominations are taking this stand. And certainly, obviously, even unbelievers were... Remember, Satan hates what God is doing in the world. Always has, always will. And if Israel is still an instrument of God, you can expect that Satan is going to pour out wrath, his wrath, upon those that belong to the nation of Israel. And you see it manifested within the church, unfortunately, The church has a bad history in its dealings with the nation of Israel. 
Now, not those that are what we would call dispensational, not those that have, I believe, a biblical view. And certainly we uh, want to do what the Bible teaches. Mary so it's a, a church view, because I've always thought that that was sort of a secular a secular thing in what you see in... Anti-Semitism? Uh-huh. A lot of it is, yes. In, certainly in Europe, the, the anti-Semitic... There you go. Number six. <laughs> Hitler used Martin Luther, who became anti-Semitic later in his ministry. He didn't begin anti-Semitic, but from this theology, later on, in the later years of Martin Luther, he became anti-Semitic, and during a part of the justification of Hitler was stemmed from this idea. So this is a dreadful concept. And that's the reason I'm raising it, because it's present today, and you need to see it. And I think that's why Photios raised it last week. It's a false doctrine. False doctrine. So some of the implications, they have many advantages. The distortion that the Jews had, that Paul is addressing, they felt they had ownership of God's word. In other words, uh, God gave it to them, yes. But it was not to be owned by them in the sense that it is ours. No one else can partake of it. They're entrusted with it to share it with the world. Okay? And that's made clear in that passage as well. And we can apply that and say that ministry is a great privilege for us. Your spiritual gift is not your possession. Yes, it's given to you. But it's given to you in order that you share that gift and utilize it in ministering to others. That's our privilege. We as believers have many advantages as well. We looked at those when we were in chapter 2. So that's the first objection, kind of a review and a re-emphasis of some of the things that we didn't finish last time. Second objection, verses 3 through 4. We have the issue in verse 3. Kind of follows the same pattern. And if you notice on the outline sheet, I've got issues and answers, issues and answers in each of these. So the structure is very similar. So verse three is the issue of the second objection. And it's a series of questions. If you count them all, I think there's nine of them by the time you get to verse eight. And then when you get to verse nine, there's another question. So there's more than 10 questions in this portion of scripture. So quick question. What then? Tying it back to the first objection. Do Jews have advantage? Is circumcision a benefit? And he answers it, yes, great in every respect. And then now, well, if that's true, what then? If some did not believe, in other words, they're not really true Jews, they're really what Paul classifies as uncircumcised, what then? Does this spill over, and does this kind of uh, deal with the rest of the nation as well? Will their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? So he's going to deal with that issue. How is this related to all of those promises? If we have believers and unbelievers sharing in these promises, does that unbelief nullify it? Interesting, in this passage, he's going to emphasize the word for faith, or we use kind of two words to convey that concept. Belief, in other words, faith is in fact believing something, believing that something is true, and believing it such that 
you uh, put confidence in it. And just to show the emphasis here in verse 2, he just talked about they were entrusted. The word entrusted is the word for faith. In other words, God put faith in the nation of Israel such that he gave them or trusted them with the oracles of God. We translate it, here's even a third way of using that same concept, to be entrusted with something. In other words, somebody had faith that we would uh, do what we were supposed to do with whatever we are entrusted with. But it's the basic word. It's the same word for belief. It's pistuo. Uh, you might even say they were believed with the oracles of God, believed by God with the oracles of God. Now, better translation, entrusted. In other words, God entrusted the oracles to them. So that's in verse 2. And then in verse 3, what then if some did not believe? Notice pistuo there, except what does it have before it? Ah, as the, Yeah, as the alpha. And in Greek, when you precede a word with the alpha, what does it do? It gives you the opposite. It's like in English, on. So if you're happy and you put on in it, what? You're not happy. <laughs> Similarly, in Greek, if you put an alpha before a word, and in this case, pistuo, to believe, what then if some did not believe? So it includes the not. Uh, the translation did not believe would be a translation of that word. And then again, that's the verb form, a pistuo, verbal idea, now he uses the noun, their unbelief. In other words, the noun form. And again, we have apistia. You see that? Pistas is the noun form of belief. Pistuo is the verb form to believe. In other words, the verbal idea. So he's using belief in verse 2, and then in verse 3, the opposite, did not believe. And then the verb form and the noun form. And then now, in the last part of verse 3, will not, their unbelief will not nullify the pistis. See that word recurring? Verb form, noun form, back and forth, and then the negation of it two times. In reference to God, the pistis of God, will it? You see that? It's translated faithfulness. You could almost translate it, will not nullify the believing aspect of God. In other words, God's trueness or reality, you might even say, or faithfulness is a good translation. Now, in this context, if you translate it faithfulness, you could even translate the apostia, their unfaithfulness, because it's kind of the opposite of pistis. Will their unfaithfulness will not nullify the faithfulness of God. And I think it's kind of a deliberate wordplay there. And that might even be a better way of translating it. But the same idea, if you will, unfaithfulness or unbelief. But the thing I wanted you to notice here is Paul is playing on that word and using it four times in that context. Use the verb form to believe. He uses the noun Pistis at the end there, then he uses the negation of both the verb and the noun. So he's using that word group four times in two verses there. So, let's answer it. What then, if some did not believe, 
their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. And that's the objection that they would raise. And Paul's going to answer it in verse 4. May it never be. And this is a very common little phrase that Paul uses, not only in the book of Romans, but he uses it elsewhere. It was a common phrase in the first century. You could even translate it in a variety of ways. It's the strongest way in the Greek language to negate something. In other words, if you wanted to just totally knock the legs out of something by negating it, you would say, meganoito. Meganoito is the Greek word at the top there. There's another scene from Natal, by the way. Sunrise. Gave you a moonrise. Here's a sunrise from the apartment I was staying in. Can you see Africa, by the way? (laughs) Okay, you could even say, away with that thought. In other words, get rid of that idea. You could translate it, banish the thought. Or you could say, let not such a thing be even considered at all. Get rid of it immediately. Meginoito. Let it not be conceived of. Don't even think about it. You translate it that way. Or perish the idea. Destroy it. As soon as it crops up, kill it. Be it not so. Kind of a little simple way of doing it. Or you might say, impossible. Impossible. Inconceivable. Good heavens, no. Or perhaps more popularly, are you crazy (laughs) to conceive of such an idea? What's wrong with you? Or another way might be absolutely not. That's may denoito. Yeah, you could say something, yeah, a little expanded what Jesus says. Yeah, this is so satanic, get thee behind me. Yeah. Now, that has more spiritual connotations, but this deals with just any idea that is just totally out of the question. And that's what he says here. In other words, the strongest way to negate something. In other words, this idea is so ridiculous, we need to just dismiss it immediately. So may it never be, rather. In other words, here's the truth. And the corrective is a true understanding of the nature of God. Let God be found true. In other words, God is always truthful, true. God is always reality. God is always absolute truth. Let God be true. In other words, God is true. It doesn't matter what we think. But what we need to do is adjust our thinking such that we cast out these wrong ideas and in our thinking settle it in our minds Okay, in my mind, I'm going to let God be true. He is true no matter what. And I'm the loser if I take a different viewpoint. So let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. And in this context, he's talking to the Jewish people, and he's saying, your concepts are lies. They're misrepresentations. These protests go against the very nature of who God is. These objections Every man be found a liar. And we have a contrast in this passage of what man is like as opposed to what God is like. And we could uh, develop that concept. The thoughts of man or the ideas of man sometimes are classified as evil, sometimes rebellious, sometimes other descriptive words. That's the nature of man. 
And I think implying here, this is the nature of this objection, because he rejects it so strongly. This is a lie. This is an unbiblical concept. Let God be true, even though every man be found a liar. So we have the concept of God's faithfulness. So let's remind ourselves of the faithfulness of God. Numbers 23:19. Would somebody care to look that up real quickly? Mary Lee's got it. How about Deuteronomy 32:4? Somebody want to do that one? Kathy's got that one. Psalm 33. Got want that one? And just for your notes, that's probably enough. You can jot down Psalm 89:2. In fact, look up Psalm 89 instead. Oh, you want to do that? Okay. We can read it. How about Numbers 23:19? Mary Lee. Okay, 23:19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Okay. It almost summarizes, and you almost get the sense that Paul may be summarizing in this passage what we have in Numbers. You know, let every man be a liar, and God's not like that. He's the very opposite of that. And he has spoken, and what he has spoken, he has done. He's got a record. Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithful and without injustice, righteous and upright speak. Okay, that's the biblical concept of God. A faithful God that does what he says to the letter, beyond, in contrast to man. Psalm 33, 4, Connie. Oh, okay. No, that's all right. Go ahead. Yeah, we changed that on you. Sorry about that. Okay, 33, 4. Okay. All that he's done is what? Truth. 89, read, read verse 2. 2 says, For I have said mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithful will establish the very heaven." Verse 8, O God, Lord of hosts, who is mighty like you? O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you in the last ones. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. Okay, and there's literally hundreds of passages that have the idea of God as faithful. History has proven God faithfully. Everything he has said has come to fulfillment. There are still yet unfulfilled promises, but so far everything that he said has been fulfilled. So history is a record of the faithfulness of God. If you want some more verses in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, 2 Timothy 2, 13, Hebrews 10, 23, 1 Peter 4, 19, just a few. So this idea that God is unfaithful is a demonic idea that is not supported anywhere in the Bible. God is utterly faithful. And in this context, he is faithful to Israel. Mary Lee. And I would say that when we feel let down or disappointed because we perceive that he was unfaithful, it is because of our own desires and our own expectations that we were projecting upon him exactly that that for what we wanted. Yep, for our selfish for what desires. Nothing. Ah. <laughs> we create God in our own image. Exactly. We tend to create God in our own image. Exactly. And another piece to this, another verse you might add to the Testament on fourteen six, where Jesus says he is the definition of truth. 
truth. Yes, he is absolute truth. He's the embodiment of truth, exactly. Just a few here. So God is faithful, and as it is written, so he's going to go to the Old Testament, and by the way, this is the first quote from the Old Testament in this portion, beginning in verse 18, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Do you know where that comes from? Anyone know where that comes from? Psalm 51, Connie says. (laughs) Connie knows. (laughs) Psalm 51, anyone know the context of that psalm? Connie also knows that. David after the sin with Bathsheba. So Connie wrote this slide. (laughs) And verse 1, in fact, I was intending to read it. We don't have time, but in verse 31, 51.1, David is, this is a prayer of David after Bathsheba, confessing his sin. Verse 1, he acknowledges that he does not deserve God's mercy, but has received it based on God's grace. David deserves judgment. He acknowledges it himself. And in verse 2, he requests for restoration, not based on his kingship, not based on anything in himself, simply based on God's grace. Verse 3 and 4, he confesses his sin, simply confesses his sin, acknowledging that his sin, even though it was against Bathsheba, he doesn't acknowledge it here. Ultimately, all sin is against God himself, against the integrity and person of God himself. So he confesses his sin to God. To him alone, he has sinned. And then at the end of verse 4, we have this quotation where God is justified in judging. In other words, God has every right to bring every judgment upon David, not forgive his sin. God would be perfectly righteous in doing that. God would be perfectly righteous in pouring down and removing David as king, if God so chose. But because of his goodness and his righteousness, God forgives And this is, like I said, the first direct quote of the Old Testament, and it's in this context to refute a Jewish objection. Just to compare the two, Paul kind of changes it around. Now he quotes out of the Septuagint, the Greek translation, but Psalm 51, the Masoretic text, against you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified. In other words, God is perfectly justified or has every right when you speak. In other words, everything that you say is accurate and true, and you are justified to condemn in your speaking, and blameless, or you could even say vindicated or victorious when you judge. In Psalm 51 in the Old Testament, who's doing the judgment, particularly the Masoretic text? God. God is. God is judging. Paul gives another kind of an application of the same idea. He's not denying it, but under inspiration, notice it says, when you are judged, when God is evaluated by mankind, it's going to be demonstrated and obvious that God is in fact vindicated. His words will prevail. He will be victorious when even everyone else comes to the realization and conclusion God is vindicated in his judgment. 
And I think he's applying it to the Jew here. They're going to see someday that the way that God has dealt with the nation of Israel has been just. Does the Hebrew in 51.4, does the verb form have sufficient breadth to include both reasons? Yeah, I think it's the broad concept. In other words, God is justified. And I think Paul is, is applying it under inspiration to his situation. Yeah, he's not abusing or changing the Hebrew text. So God is faithful to Israel, and this is where we'll conclude today. Supersessionism is a false doctrine. God is going to be faithful to everything he has said concerning the nation of Israel, every promise, every covenant. Faithful to all of his promises, he legally has bound himself to covenants. A covenant is a contract, like what a contractor will enter into. That's what a covenant is. It's a contract. It's a legally binding document. God has entered into. Man doesn't enter into covenant with God. God enters into covenant with man. So God's not going to break any of those covenants, particularly the Abrahamic covenant, particularly the new covenant, particularly the Palestinian covenant that promises the land, and certainly not the Davidic covenant. He has bound himself, so they still have future fulfillments. God has not abandoned Israel. Supersessionism is a false doctrine, or replacement theology is not a biblical doctrine. Israel has a great future. Fifthly, the ultimate fulfillment is in the millennial kingdom. Sixthly, the church is a parenthesis kind of an interruption in the overall program of God. Now, not from God's perspective, but you might, in terms of Israel, the focus is Israel, and God has put within that way of reaching Gentiles as well, because Israel had failed, but God remains faithful to the nation of Israel. It's a good place to stop. A proper view of God's nature, and that's what Paul focuses in on. He's going to do more of that in the next two objections. But a proper view of God's nature corrects faulty doctrines. Who wants to close for us? Connie. So much of it reminding us of our place in your plan, Amen. Have a wonderful Christmas.